You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see sisters soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. We are talking about the women of Exodus. So this is technically a part two. Apparently, I'm, I'm doing a series. We started last year. I, I was with you guys on um, that um, in Exodus chapter one, the midwives um, ship from Pua and we the, with the wow team kind of decided that kind of a continuation of of this would be fun so this year we're talking about um partnership across the river jochebed miriam and pharaoh's daughter so yes yeah, so we're talking about exodus chapter two but i'm kind of going to pause us and before we really get into um this text i want to spend some time talking about the the ezer helper word that the WOW team so wisely chose for this year's kind of theme through looking at scripture. It was not a word that I'd really studied. And so as I as I dug into it and as I thought about this text for today, there was just a lot of stuff that came up that I really found interesting and wanted to kind of set as the foundation. So I know if it the word Ezer typically translates to helper, but as I kind of settled into it, they, this this quote by Mother Teresa, which is a common one, so you might have heard it before, but if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other, has really just come up and kind of settled into how I'm looking at this word and at this story today, that, that the helper, that this word Ezer is really a partnership and a sense of belonging that we're given by um, our creator. And so I just wanted to set that in your mind as we look at this, at this word and at this text today. So Ezer, helper, I have Genesis 2.18 here. I guess a quick, before we get into the text, I one of the reasons I think that WOW has established this as this year's theme as, as women, as we look at this word is because <clears throat> we can, I think, all agree that this word has been <clears throat> soaked in patriarchy, that we tend to look at this word help as something subordinate. And often the woman gets put in that role as something then inherently inferior. And it's just not scriptural at all. And so whether gender hierarchy has directly impacted your life or indirectly so, it is present today in our culture, our society, our churches, our families. And yeah, we need to reconsider even that that is just kind of naturally flowed down in our way of thinking, right? So looking at this text, 218, where it comes from, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I am not a biblical scholar. And so this is just my Googling searching. I use the Orthodox Jewish Bible because it took up some Hebrew um, words that I, at the key points here that I thought were really interesting. So just for curiosity's sake, um, this translation writes, it is not tove that the Adam should be alone. I will make an Ezer, a helper, suitable for him. So as we look at these words, first coming from the beginning, this word helper. Adam, I also want to look at closely because Adam is a word that translates as humankind or mankind. And Adam is not actually gendered in the beginning it is not it is not a ma- it is not male and it is not gendered in the original hebrew text all references to adam are neutral until god takes some of adam's flesh and makes a woman isha 
in Hebrew, but only at this point then is Adam called Ish, a man. So looking at the verse in Genesis 2.23 is the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And the Adam said, this is now in, in the Hebrew etzim of my etzim, basar of my basar, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. So I just wanted to note that the, the Ish, in the, what, what this means is in the beginning, God made human and not in that in humankind, no suitable helper was found. Human was alone and being alone was not good. Being alone was not good. So creator took the one and made two only to make them one again. So that's in the beginning, the Adam is, is both male and female. It is, it is whole. It is there already. The female is already there in the beginning. And then, and then they are separated in order for them to find wholeness again. So I'm not sure how and why that works, that this separation is required um, in order for wholeness, why it wasn't whole alone, just Adam. But I think there's something in this when we recognize our need for the other in order for our wholeness. So just all that to say that this verse 23 that follows, right? So be, you were separated, but only in order to be immediately made whole again. So as we look at verse 24, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, they become one flesh. I just want to make clear that this is not saying that marriage is the only way to completeness, that we are not, um, that marriage or that this is not a um, gender binary thing that only is made full as though as male and female come together. It's actually that we are whole only as we, as we find the other. And so it's much less about a man and a woman, but actually just one coming out of the other, that one is not complete without the other. So think of this as Adam as, as wholeness, and that that is what we are striving for, right? Oneness and wholeness. I think there's something innate in us that knows our wholeness comes through being with each other, that we are not complete without the other. So the thing about this is that something new wasn't created human was split and a separation in order to ultimately be more fully whole. We don't know why. And we keep asking why we know it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So God created not woman, but created partnership and companionship and belonging. And we keep asking why, why are we designed for this? But I think what we do know is that we cannot be alone, that we do need the other for our wholeness. Um, and that I think that the way that scripture reveals this is through, through partnership and, and belonging to each other, not marriage specifically and not any specific example of that, but just generally belonging to each other. The Ezra helper, also Ezra in scripture, most often refers to God being our help, specifically saving us from our enemy or times of trouble. So the idea that Eve is subordinate to Adam is not in the text the language of helper in Hebrew is someone you call on for rescue, really a superior being in the sense of God is my help, not a helpmate or an assistant. So every, the, the, the WOW team had an extensive list of, of places where 
scripture names Ezer, and majority of them being us calling to our help from God, right? So Psalm 33, 20 is just one example of that. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is Ezreinu, our help. And I, I liked that one because one, that's a verse that gets repeated a few times in scripture, but it shows this, this notion that somehow our help is not subordinate. It is not someone underneath, but it is actually our help coming to deliver us. And so as we look again back at that beginning as, as Eve made as helper, or as Adam and Eve both made as helpers of the other, how are they made to deliver each other? So how are they, how is this help our deliverance? And I would say that the destruction of humankind is its own rejection of wholeness, forgetting it belongs to God and each other. So again, we hear that quote from Mother Teresa that um, to have no peace when we forget that we belong to each other. And we see this, the greatest command to love God and love one another comes all ties into this idea of wholeness, of remembering we are one with each other. And that sounds familiar or should sound familiar as followers of Christ. And I, again, could spend way much too long on this. So I'm just going to give a few verses just to kind of put this all together in our mind as we as we look further. But John 14, 18, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. This weird thing again, where Christ is, that we are separated from God. So Christ separates from God to make us all one, right? This, this separation in order for wholeness. John 14, 20, on that day, you will know that I am in my father and you and me and I in you. John 17 to 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me that they may be become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And then again, Ephesians 5, 31, 32, for this reason, okay, now New Testament referring back to this Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. This is specifically about something that God is showing us through Christ and through God's self and through our experience in life with each other. So one more thing before we move out of this kind of beginning thing is Anthony DeMello. He has these wisdom stories. You can look it up online. They they, you just Google it and it should turn up there. Are, there are several of them and they're really, a lot of them are really interesting, but this is one called one body that I heard relatively recently, but it's been kind of stuck in my mind ever since. And so again, just one, another verse to throw at you. First Corinthians 12, 12 for just as the body is one and has many members and all members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. And so I'm just going to leave you with this story. Once upon a time, the various parts of the body began complaining against the stomach. Look at me, says the hand. I till the soil to plant the seeds. I harvest the crops. I prepare the food. All that the stomach ever does is lie there waiting to be fed. This is unfair. The feet agreed. Me too. I carry the heavy stomach around all day. I carry him to the farm to get food. I carry him to the river to get water. I even carry him up the palm tree to get palm wine. 
And all the stomach ever does is lie there and expect to get his ration of food, water and wine whenever he needs them. This is unfair. The head too complained how he carries all the heavy load from the farm and from the river, all to feed the stomach who does nothing to help. The parts of the body decided that this injustice must stop. To force the issue, they decided to embark on a protest action. They agreed to stop working and feeding the lazy stomach until the stomach learns to be a responsible citizen of the body. A whole day went by and the stomach was not given any food or water or wine. All the stomach did was groan from time to time while the others taunted him. By the second day of starving the stomach, the head said that he was beginning to feel dizzy. By the third day, the hands reported they were feeling weak and the feet were wobbly and could not stand straight. Then it dawned on them that much as they were visibly supporting the stomach, the stomach was also supporting them in a less obvious but equally important way. It dawned on them that by feeding the stomach, they were feeding themselves without knowing it. So they called off their strike action and went back to work to feed the stomach. Their strength returned and together with the stomach, they lived happily together after. So it dawned on them that by feeding the stomach, they were feeding themselves without knowing it is just, I think, so significant. So now we're in Exodus chapter two. So just context, Exodus one, which we did last year, if you were here for that, the Hebrew people came to Egypt and then and at first they were, you know, with Joseph and at first there was blessing and then the Pharaoh time passes and the Pharaoh forgets them. And then the Pharaoh gets frustrated with how quickly they're multiplying and worried about them. They become enslaved and tries to have the midwives kill all the baby boys, which they defy setting on, as this was said, kind of the become the first deliverers in the book of deliverance, right? So uh, Shifra and Pua become these, as they defy Pharaoh, they set this kind of domino effect. And we'll see it as we look at this next chapter, but Pharaoh still gets his way, but now he makes a decree to have these women, to have these babies. So Exodus chapter two, just verses one through 10, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a piperous basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her attendants walked beside the river, she saw while her attendants walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So yeah, so this is again the continuation of the Shifra and Pua story to now Jochebed, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. And although we didn't get their names in this text from Exodus chapter 2, 
these names start to become associated with them. So I didn't include Pharaoh's daughter's name, which sometimes is referred to as Bithia, but Jochebed and Miriam are more commonly known as Moses's mother and sister. And so that's what they are there. As we thought about the word Ezer and thought about these three women looking at the way that their lives connected and the way that their unity, their unified work, it was the work of God carried out. And that the redemption and liberation comes from the unity of these women. So even what Moses represents his whole life and what he is able to do liberating the people of Israel starts with these women and their work. So I'm going to quickly go through this because I want to spend more time at the end, but um, just to give some context. So Yochebed or Yocheved is not named, I said, until later in Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, we see her name in the genealogy of Moses. But the Yo is from the Y in Yahweh. And Will Gaffney writes that in the second bullet point, you see, Jochebed imitates God. God sees that each stage of creation is good, Tov. Again, Jochebed sees that the child she brings forth is also good, invoking the same word. There is a, a thread in Jewish tradition that holds Jochebed with with high honor and esteem in who she was as Moses' mother. We see her name again in Numbers 26, 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. Some translations change daughter to descendant to say that Jochebed was born to the Levites and not to Levi himself. But according to the Masoretic texts, Samaritan Pentateuch and dominant Targumum, meaning a bunch of very prominent rabbinic literature, Chocobed is the daughter of the patriarch himself, literally bat Levi, daughter of Levi, and not just a woman among his descendants. Whether or not that matters, I'm not sure, but I do think it's significant to point out just how this, if we look at Jewish tradition, some will even say, because you see in Numbers, she's born in Egypt, but they, she's also been known to be part of the group that came into Egypt. So to, to explain that, there's suggestion that she was literally born as they entered Egypt, that her mother was pregnant, that she carried from this time into the Egyptian time, lived the whole lifespan, and, and even into the time of the wilderness. So according to, to prominent Jewish tradition, she's actually had lived 200 and plus years that Moses she was Moses was born when she was about 130 again not so significant in, in how we're studying the scripture but significant in that we recognize that her life in Jewish tradition has been held very highly and that there's a lot of honor and kind of yeah respect given to her as the mother of Moses Miriam similarly becomes a prominent figure to her people, right? So we see Miriam again. We see Miriam with Moses as they lead the people out of Egypt. She leads the women as Moses leads the men. She is right there. She is a prominent woman. She is said to be the mother of the women prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, the first woman in the canon identified as a prophet and named in more biblical books than any other woman. So another really significant woman in our scripture. And then, of course, this whole story that we read this this evening is not even possible without Miriam, right? She is the connection between the mothers, her bravery, her her ability to come forward to Pharaoh's daughter 
is significant. Pharaoh's daughter, so Bat Pharaoh, daughter of Pharaoh, um, after she raises Moses, we don't hear about her again. But again, Jewish tradition considers that she, most Jewish traditions consider that she's converted. Some even believe that that's why she was in the water in the first place. And when she found Moses was that she was bathing in her conversion. But whether when and where it happened varies, but most consider her to have converted as she was even there in the desert. So according to the Midrash and the Talmud, she is one of the few souls to enter the Garden of Eden still alive. This is another interesting little tidbit that there are about 10 people that are considered to have never actually died, but to enter alive. And she is one of them. And so the significance here is that she's not even Hebrew, and yet she has the same honor. And yeah, just respect or, or yeah, just reverence given to her from the Jewish tradition. So we get her name Bithya in the book of Chronicles. Some, some scholars don't believe that Bithya is the same as Pharaoh's daughter from Exodus 2, and some do believe that she is. The significance of the name Bithya, though, however, is that Bithya, so, or Batya, is actually daughter of Yahweh, Bahia, daughter of Yahweh. So she, that the, the significance being that because she made Moses her son, Yahweh would make her his daughter. So she goes from Pharaoh's daughter to Batya. The other significant piece about her or how she has prominence is that we, the name that we use for Moses is Moses, the name given by her. Um, according to the Midrash, Moses had 10 names. It's obviously not his Hebrew name. We don't go back to his Hebrew name. The only name we know him by is Moshe or Moses, Moshe in Hebrew. So I think that, again, gives honor to her and who she was in the life of Moses. Um, if you were here last month, Vicki Chu led on the Anna the Prophetess, and she spoke in her seminar about social location. And when I was talking with the women at WOW, we were kind of reflecting that what we're doing here and looking at these women is considering their social location. So just a reminder, if you weren't here, social location is the combination of factors, including gender, race, social class, age, ability, religion, sexual orientation, and geographic location. And considering how that plays into who we are, what we do, and what we're able to do. And I think as we, as we look at these women, we can consider their social location. Kelly Nikandeya wrote this book, Defiant, which is primarily where the inspiration and a lot of the information has come from for both last year's and this year's conversations, the women of Exodus. If you didn't read it last year, it's, I still recommend it. She does a beautiful job imagining their lives and giving a picture of what their lives could have been. And she also weaves in, in stories of today or of our time that kind of also bring more life to um, these, these individuals and these, these people in scripture that we get maybe 10 verses of, right? So it's definitely worth looking at. Well, Gaffney uses this word sacred imagination. When we are given so little about women in scripture, we do have to use our imagination. And, and I kind of myself have kind of tug and pull with this because I want to say, well, we don't really know what happened. We don't really know what these women were like, but we do know some things. And the, the, the bigger thing being, if when we use our imagination, we make these women human and they become full people. We know what we do know is that they were full people with full experiences. They had fears and doubts and 
they were impatient and they were exhausted and they were hopeful and they were they had lives. And I think it is important to remember that as we as we think about them so that we consider the fullness of humanity in these women. Just to take a few minutes, I'm going to read some of the, the words that Kelly Nikandeha wrote about these women to kind of start our imagining. I also want you to take a few minutes to just to listen to this, to picture for yourself, to ask your own questions. I'm going to do the same. Kelly Nikandeha and I'm just, just prefacing that the, a lot of this illustration comes from her. So I'm not going to say her name every time. But she she writes about Jochebed naming Moses. That obviously Moses wasn't Moses to her. That wasn't her name for him. And so she calls him Matoki or her sweet one. Imagining that Jochebed would have a name for her son. That what did she whisper in his ear? What did, as she hid him for those three months, what did she call him? And then just to, to imagine what those days were like for her, those early three months as she hid her son. She writes in the book that she imagines that Jochebed maybe one day was, was looking down the river, down the waterline and saw someone. And this woman was the royal daughter. And maybe she watched her and one day their eyes locked and across the river and through the reeds. And, and in that moment, the royal daughter, this woman did not look away and she didn't look through Jochebed. And that maybe that was the moment that sparked her imagination into what could come next. And so she imagines that maybe instead of, of launching her son into the river, that she was actually the one that guided the basket across herself and put it in the thicket of reeds on purpose, betting on this royal woman's humanity. She imagines that Bithya, the, the Pharaoh's daughter, maybe took walks along the water often. And, and maybe before this, maybe sometime before this, she had been taking one of her walks when a baby washed up on the shore, nearly touching her bare feet, that the servants ran to grab the child as if to erase the incident altogether. Royal women weren't supposed to witness the underside of life in the empire, but they were too late. The waterlogged infant was the evidence she could not deny. Maybe Bithya heard the cries across the river. And so when Moses came to her feet, maybe all of this imagery and this death and this sadness and this grief also came. We can imagine Miriam in her young and clever and childish but mature ways of watching her mother and acting fast. We can imagine her wisdom and clarity in coaxing Pharaoh's daughter to, to meet a nursemaid, to ask the right question, that her bravery and her youth was allowing herself to be in these, to calculating in the best way. And then Kelly Nikandea in this book imagines that Bithya and Jochebed, the mothers of Moses, become friends. She imagines that they spend time together, that Bithya learns bits of Hebrew and both culture and language. She suggests that maybe as Jochebed and the midwives would express their anger, Bithia and her handmaids would weep, and then together they would exhale. The solidarity birthed between them, creating a strong network that traversed the Nile with regularity under the edict. And maybe they did maintain the relationship, and maybe they were friends through the years, but we don't know. We don't know. But we do know they were human. We do know that their lives were connected. We know that they did forge some kind of connection, even if it was just a knowing glance between mothers. They trusted each other when they didn't, when they shouldn't. They saw each other when they shouldn't have. 
So I just want to pose a couple questions that I had myself as we just continue to, to let our imaginations run. Were other women doing the same thing? Were there other Egyptians saving babies out of the river? And maybe did this inspire Pharaoh's daughter to do the same? And maybe she was just the pro most prominent one to do it. We don't know. We know that Jochebed had made a waterproof basket. So we know she had the intention of saving this baby. But how much of this was her plan? How did she know that she could trust Pharaoh's daughter? Did she have friends that worked with Pharaoh's daughter that were her handmaid, her handmaids? Or could Miriam have already been working for Pharaoh's daughter? Was she herself a handmaid? We, we have no idea, and maybe that's a complete reach, but I, I was curious in thinking that if Bithia and Jochebed didn't remain friends, maybe it was Miriam who who was there the whole life with Moses as working for Pharaoh's daughter, whispering in his ear the lullabies of the Hebrew children and the games that they would play and telling him stories. We don't know. Maybe Moses didn't know his identity in those early days. We can only imagine. Maybe he didn't know his identity until that moment before he went out and killed the Egyptian. Maybe it was that was his turning point when his mother his, this Pharaoh's daughter finally revealed to him the truth. We don't know. We can only imagine. As written in this book here, Kelly Nikandea writes, our work is to partner with those who can lead the way. This is what Bithya learned from Jochebed's entrapment in the reeds and from the young Hebrew girl's clever questions. They needed her to submit to their ideas about how to save the boy. They needed her to use her privilege to empower their salvation strategies. And when she recognized what she could do in that moment on the shore of the Nile River, she allowed her social imagination to serve a liberation purpose in partnership with Hebrew women. So what we don't know everything about, this, about these women. We don't know if they became friends, but we know that had they remained in isolation, none of this would have happened. We know that isolation is destructive. I don't know if you have felt it personally this past year or seen it around you, the devastation isolation brings. Or maybe you can relate as many postpartum mothers do. In their depression, isolation is often the number one fear. We are not meant to be isolated. But it is through partnership, it is through mutuality, it is through oneness with the other that we are made whole, that we bring healing and liberation, that we find healing and liberation. As we join together, forging friendships or simple connections, we see others, we see others that we normally wouldn't see, and we trust others that we normally wouldn't trust. And this brings our deliverance as the design of our great creator. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.